Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN, and your host for the 2030.cloud podcast series. This is one of the podcasts we had in December about hardware and the future of hardware. Uh, open standards, ARM, uh, RISC-V, propagation of different hardware types in the cloud. Uh, truly a, a fantastic presentation led by, led by Paul Teich, one of, one of our regular members and contributors. In this, uh, please you know, listen through about how much innovation is actually going through with hardware. It's a really impressive amount, and it's being driven out of all sorts of interesting places, from things like Open19 and Open Compute, where the industry is trying to, uh, big players in the industry are trying to shape how hardware is consumed, uh, to you know, ARM chips and, and what might be coming to your house or phone or laptop now. A lot to consider in this episode. Please enjoy it. Also, as a note, uh, we're about to start dropping the Cloud 2030 Summit discussions. Uh, Those will be about 35 minutes long each, where we broke huge topics down into 30-second, 30-minute conversations. So look forward to that in your feed, uh, and we have a huge backlog of content coming also. So thank you. And if you have things that, that what you hear you want to talk about, you you make you mad, make you excited, you have an alternate take, uh, give us a shout. We still want to have these one-on-one conversations, uh, and that is a part of what the podcast will be bringing to you in the future, too. So let us know how we're doing, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. So uh, I used to actually be an analyst um, until a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I, I 20 years with AMD. I actually have... Um, <laughs> This gets back to that 30 years experience. Um, I, have, I have a BS in computer science when it was really computer science, kind of roughly in the Bronze Age. Um, and a little bit of electrical engineering with it. Um, and so I'm kind of going back to my roots as a product manager. Uh, I spent 20 years with AMD after I spent 10 years doing software development. We'll call that decade the 80s. Um, <laughs> If you remember AT&T System 5 and 4.2, 4.3 BSD, yeah, that was me. Um, Sun and Vaxes and mini computers and stuff. Uh, so uh, went to AMD, I launched Opteron in the early aughts. Uh, and so now I've come kind of come full circle and, and this whole bare metal thing, um, part of what got me to go over to Equinix here is um, we're just kind of at the beginning of this journey. So I, think I had a couple of questions because I want to level set on, you know, when, when somebody says, and I know this is a loaded question, right? What is open source hardware? Okay, do you, you guys just go, oh, come on. Uh, what, what do you think when someone says that? Um, I've got my opinion, I'll share it in a second, but what do you hear? Open source hardware. I see Rob scratching his head, even though he's not scratching his head. No, it's well, it's, I mean, this is, it's interesting because I have, you know, the first thing I usually think about is OCP when somebody says open source hardware, but I, I actually am, am not, I, that's not actually what I think is open source hardware. I, I tend, then I go to ARM and RISC and I, I think about the open architecture stuff that they've built um, from that perspective, but I, I don't, it's it's a weird it's a it's the whole concept is weird. I hear free hardware is what I hear, and I hope I'm right. I go I, and I go to stuff, and I go to stuff like purism, right to the device side. Okay, so 
What was the question, Ed, Paul? Sorry. What do you what do you think when you hear open hardware, open source hardware? I, I hear an executive board leading with a marketing strategy. That's very I, high. Yeah. So I agree. Um, so essentially somewhere hardware is different than software, and it's somewhere you have to manufacture bits or, or atoms. Right. And, and to manufacture atoms, you have to make a margin. You have to make money in a capitalist society. Right. And so there has to be some kind of differentiation. There has to be some kind of intellectual property or edge in the manufacturing. And so open only goes so far. Right. When you're in OCP, Open Compute Project, it's a bunch of hyperscalers dumping their pet projects into a pool of intellectual property. And essentially nobody uses that. Facebook is the only one actually like using at scale the stuff they dump into it. And it's almost unusable by everybody else. Okay, so one of the problems with, and this includes Equinix, right? One of the problems with that is that unless you're operating at their scale, you're buying power at their scale, you're buying, you're building warehouse sized data centers at their scale. Um, it's hard to get the efficiencies out of that hardware, right? And so on the other side, you hear risk five. Yeah, ARM has IP blocks and they're very power efficient IP blocks. They're actually not very expensive to license if you do it at scale, if you are AWS or your Ampere or that Nvidia is buying them <laughs> so, or trying to, right? And so... Licensing an ARM core, somebody actually spent money ARM to develop that intellectual property that then enables people to place and route, you know, 16, 32 cores with a mesh network, with memory controllers, with all this stuff. Risk five takes that and says, okay, we're going to have a kind of communal development effort. Um, but still, when you look at Sci Five and some of the companies who are actually doing this, there's there's intellectual property involved. There, the, Risk Five is an instruction set, like ARM is an instruction set, and there are implementations under that, right? And so the challenge in open hardware is this whole atoms thing. Somebody's got to make money in a capitalist society by making differentiated atoms. Um, the way so. Scale versus hyperscale. Um, part of the discussion in OCP is uh, in order to take advantage of the hardware, they've already written software to manage at scale. This is near and dear to Rob's vibe, right? And what I was just hearing too from John, um, in order to manage these fleets, uh, They've, they've designed hardware and software, co-designed, that's the right word. They've co-designed hardware and software. So as their software's matured, their hardware has changed. They've spec'd it differently. They've asked for acceleration features for uh, crypto is easy, but also uh, RDMA. So SRIOV and RDMA and all these things to make the stuff we used to do in software go faster and more power efficiently. Um, the farther you go up the software abstraction layer, the less, less efficient it is. Um, and, and some of us older programmers know that. I cut my teeth on Fortran 77 in 77. 
<laughs> and we'll just leave that right exciting. there. Just leave it right yeah. there. Yeah, I was okay. gonna say, how? Do but you I think he looks so much younger than I do. Is what but I you know, Paul, you know, the it's the lighting. Um, <laughs> you know, and my filter. <laughs> it's you know, Paul. I think one of the one of the pieces, and maybe just because I've been immersed in Intel for the last three days, like drinking the Kool Aid, but. You know, the, one of the things that I think about when when I think about open hardware is there are different aspects to it, different tiers of development. There's the silicon chips and dyes themselves, and then you get into the packaging, and then you get to the next layer of the systems that these go into, and then the software that runs both on the silicon as well as onto the systems. And I think when you get to the what runs on the systems, I think that starts to get normalized, but you're right. When you look at the actual dyes and packaging, there's so much IP and technology built in there. Um, and now you're starting to see complex packaging where an individual package, and for those of you that aren't familiar with, I don't know how familiar people are with packaging and dyes. Dye is the, the little cutouts off the silicon wafer. And then those dyes get put into a package, which is what you physically see that might be like a square uh, for a CPU or GPU, or might be rectangular for other types of chipsets. And so the package might actually have multiple dies in it, or you have a single die that actually has a CPU and a GPU and FPGA and maybe multiple CPUs in it that are all kind of combined together because then you don't have to drop off of one die onto another die and use the cross connects. And so you're getting these really complicated packaging setups and die setups that are purpose built. And so, yes, it's easier to build silicon today than ever, right? There are lots of foundries that will take, take those and put it together for you. But I think that as we start to think about the different layers, we have to ask ourselves, where is the value and why? It's not as simple as the altruistic, you know, gee, let's open source everything. I, I mean, to your point, Paul, you, there has to be there has to be that that IP in there and a financial benefit. So it's as bad as this at the, at the hyperscalers. Um, the last gig I had was starting up a market intelligence thing, prying into the top four IaaS clouds, uh, Lifter Insights. Um, I'm not there anymore. No financial link. But uh, what we discovered there was that. Um, the last couple of generations of processors, Intel and AMD, uh, the clouds, the big clouds have ordered off the books, semi-custom. Okay, you cannot go to Intel Arc and find that part number uh, for that AWS SKU that you just rented for Cascade Lake. Okay, that's, yeah. it, it's off the books. Well, let, and, me, let me add a, a data point to that specifically. More than half of a particular silicon manufacturer's SKUs are custom yeah and that's across not just the hyperscalers but enterprise as well more than half are yeah. custom SKUs. And, and what was the prominent driver for that i mean we did the same for cost right all, all that proprietary ip and packaging that was put onto the motherboard that that turned a twenty-five thousand dollar motherboard into a thirty-five thousand dollar motherboard we didn't need and right yes so but but for some things, if you're going to differentiate at scale, you need, if, you, if you're, for instance, if you're lighting up smart speakers with an artificial intelligence backend and you're building warehouses that, let's just call them Alexa, okay? So you're building 
warehouse sized data, you know, data centers full of Alexa to go serve how many transactions per day, you're going to tune that to a specific set of silicon over time to lower your operational costs, lower, lower the power costs of answering what was the sports score last night. That's that, has the, a, that has a presumption to it. it. It presumes I know what workload I'm going to run. That's right. And, right. and, and, that's, and, and, and that and, is and true for the hyperscalers. It, I, I'm not right. sure that it's completely true. I, I think it's tough. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's, I think it's tough. So um, like I'll, I'll pick on, so first off, I don't think it solves Rob's problem. Let me, let me back up to that. And, and I guess the one that comes to, when you start talking about open source and, and IP and that stuff, I go back to MPEG. Right, open source <laughs> consortium, not really. Everyone right. contributes their IP and everyone gets to use MPEG. They, they leverage off the licensing of it. Um, it's really a licensing model, but at least MPEG kind of works, right? Because right. right. if you pay the licensing fee, it gets there. What, what doesn't kind of work with the hardware side, and you mentioned SRIOB, right? But the problem is, is there's not one generation of that. And my management systems have to adapt to the different generations into it. And it completely changes the layout of my network fabric and a whole bunch of other things um, and my logic software. So the problem with the, the hardware stack is it, it evolves and we expect it to evolve. And so what I started with, so I, I built out the edge compute platform for Ericsson, right? So what I started with five years ago was not what I had two and a half years ago, which is not what I had, you know, a year ago. Yeah, kind of stuff because the hardware evolution followed the economics followed it. We had to follow that. So even if all the interfaces were standard, the, the software that operates it still has to follow the hardware curve and, and the maturation of that process into it, which is what makes the operations piece tough. And that's so let's talk about scale for a second. So when when you're outfitting edge locations and you're essentially evolving a network over time, uh I think there's a level below scale, okay, call it moderate, hyperscale, right? So there's small scale, people just buy what's off the shelf, maybe a branded system from HPE, Lenovo, Dell, right? And there's kind of a moderate scale where folks are caught in the middle. They're competing in some respects with the hyperscalers. You have a completely different operational model, uh, but you're not deploying that much in any given time period. Right, you're you're not outfitting an entire data center. You're outfitting some location edge locations, or adding racks to existing data centers. What we do, right? And so, is is there kind of hate to use subscale is kind of diminutive, but is there kind of a moderate scale where most of us are existing? Uh, those of us who aren't the top, you know, super seven clouds. Yeah. If, I mean, forfeit, forfeit. I, I can speak very, very clearly on this one. I mean, that is that is what um, Liam Liam Eagle at four fifty one and the guys at Red and the folks at Red Monk have been have been carving out, and it is what they're calling it is uh, they've been rallying around the alternative providers, right? They are, and I've talked about this on the call on these calls before, but you you know you just you just defined it right. It's the that sort of Goldilocks, thin Goldilocks layer of providers that are not fly by night in somebody's garage, WordPress hosters, right? Through cloud providers that have, you know, an international footprint that are using 
the you know all the commodity level stuff, right? AMD and Nvidia GPUs and CPUs. They um, they've got you know that's S three compatible storage. Um, the pricing is a crap load less. Um, I don't know if crap load is the official technological. As long as term it's in metric, that, it's official. Yeah, I and it's and but but what Paul was saying is they're not they're never going to compete with AWS or um, you know, or, uh, you know, or Microsoft, right. They are, so I think they will, I, I think they will Mike, but, but for very specific reasons, meaning yeah. if you look at, I, I think one of the challenges we have in the hyperscalers today is that, you know, with, for all the great things that they offer, it's still a general purpose offering, right? It's not tuned for any specific kind of nature of workload. And yes, you can pick pick and part, you know, the pieces and put them together and try and cobble it into something that, that is meaningful. But this is where I think, you know, you start to talk about verticals and you start to talk about a certain nature, a certain characteristic of workload. Now we see that at scale in the government, for example, and there are other ramifications for regulatory and compliance and privacy. But I think as we start to kind of carve out these broader chunks that we can characterize at enough scale, then we start to see a one-off for that particular vertical or that particular use case. But in the meantime, we just continue to see, you know, these general purpose offerings from the hyperscalers. So there's an interesting dilemma that we, we talked about when we talked about edge before that is worth talking about because when we, we talked about edge and we identified that the big breakthroughs that we've seen in tech don't come from these specialized things. They come from the, the place where there's a general, there's, there's, there's usually, they rely on older generation, more common platforms, like the big break, like, you know, the big breakthroughs don't require you to go buy a new phone. They, you know, like uh, the LiDAR feature of Apple's phone is not gonna create a, a breakthrough edge technology. It's cool, but it's not accessible enough. And, and I, I think part of what, what to me is, is interesting and frustrating at the same time is as much as we have all this cool tech coming, we're not creating a ubiquitous platform. The heterogeneity of the systems is actually working against our ability to create mass, you know, have a mass adoption. And yeah. Tim, I'm saying something you don't agree with or? No, it's, you're right, Rob. It's just, you're talking about, I, I'll say the words and then I'll caveat it. You're talking about an altruistic situation. And I think, you know, the edge is messy, really messy. And there's a lot of competition from a lot of different directions, everything from non-IP based sensors to um, individual proprietary networks that things are plugging into. And there's, there's good reason for each of those. If you were to pick any one of those off, and I, di I did a lot of work around this um, when I was on the board of Modius because we were taking, um, we were essentially taking non-IP based sensors in a data center and trying to, to bring it together to, to create a monitoring and ability to, to understand and, and leverage that insight. Um, that still exists today and it will take time to, to kind of plan that out. I mean, even if you look at the cloud providers and the approaches that each of them are taking at the edge, they're vastly different. Why is that, right? 
you know, if you look at what Google's doing, if you look at, I mean, I'm sure John can talk about what, what he did at Ericsson and, and the reasons why, but if you look at every single provider, they're taking a completely different approach. And there's good reason why they're doing that, especially initially. I think over time that will start to normalize, but in the time horizon of 2030, I don't think so. I think we're, we're better off looking at how do we start to bring this heterogeneity into the mix and be able to leverage it in a meaningful way. I mean, that's, you know, me, this, this is where, you know, where rack N invests a lot of time is we don't, we don't fight the heterogeneity. We embrace it because it, because right. It's messy, but that's what innovation looks like. What, what we see right now is, you know, people trying out ideas to figure out the right mix of stuff. And, and we don't know part of the hyperscaler challenge hyperscalers challenges is that they don't, they can't, it's very hard for them to play. Um, Right. They, they are getting into a point like all big companies do where they're, they're, you know, their small bets are, you know, enormous even. Well, um, but the, hyper, the yeah. hyperscalers are playing, particularly in edge. In fact, they've won the war. Right. So, I think so, they've they uh, won the war for there's, there's a, we're, we're, I, I, we're just a skirmishes. I don't think let there's me, a war yet. Let, let me give you, let me give you two, sure. two things to, to think about at least, right? Yeah. So when we started doing this, whatever it was, five years ago, six years ago, we, we were really working on a, a bifurcated business model. The operators had to spend to provide 10 new gigs of capacity. The, the content providers had to spend 10 gigs of capacity. So let's just, and, and no one's got any margins, so let's share the cost, right? And all of a sudden there's enough margins for everyone, right? Um, you know, that was one goal. The second goal is let's avoid fragmentation. Let's keep the hyperscalers out. Right, kind of stuff by providing the platform they can execute on as opposed to being the platform they execute on. Right. At, at the end of the day, they gave up. They're, they're allowing the operators allowing multiple hyperscalers into their lower tier aggregation center data centers because they just can't compete with them. So on, on one scale, I would say, you know, the operators have gone away from trying to basically provide these open stack platforms to be an execution for enterprises or other providers into it. And then the second piece I would throw out and, and it goes to the edge side is, you know, the problem with edge is, is we always had this problem of justifying the spend on the current business case, right? So I'm gonna go deploy CDN, I'm gonna go deploy SD-WAN, right? And I had to justify it based on the size of that marketplace, right? And it's not a very big marketplace today. By the way, I totally agree, Tim, with the 2030 comment. It, it's pretty much what I would say is the right date. Um, where we start seeing enough aggregated business to drive, you know, something at the edge. But the, the thing we didn't account for, right, was, you know, Microsoft was growing, you know, 18 to 30 percent year over year, just providing generic cloud compute services. Right. So that allowed them to build deeper data centers just on organic growth of existing marketplaces, not based on edge. And so where you were two years ago, for example, with Microsoft's footprint versus where you are today with Azure's footprint, it, it's tough to argue you need to be deeper, right? And, and they did that because they were following an existing economic trend that already had a marketplace. That's which makes, I, I like the way you're describing that. That's I, really good. Right? That's, that's, that's their, their, funding that business based on the growth of that business at the core. But, but I would say to tie it back to the original kind of topic, Paul brought up the, the, the open hardware or open source hardware, right? One of the things Microsoft did that I thought was extremely 
intelligent and where I think you you may see the first kind of open hardware specifications is they virtualized out the network layer, right? They, they, they really went to like, because that was for us was always the, the killer, right? It was the routing and switching fabric that cost us all the money when I start virtualizing those pieces out. So where, where do I think you might see the first kind of set of open source um, hardware evolve in a way that's actually kind of getting proven out at scales? I do think it's at the network level. I, I'm actually going to disagree with you because I'm in the middle of that right now. And that's a whole bundle of new smart NIC features. So Microsoft, Amazon, AWS is going on right now. I'm sure Tim has sat in on a couple of Nitro sessions, right? What is Nitro? Uh, Nitro is their smart NIC. Uh, Amazon has Catapult. Uh, Google, I think, doesn't have one. And I think that's part of the reason they're struggling right now with enterprise adoption is they've gained flexibility in other ways, which are not so actually reduce the predictability of their performance, of, of their compute performance, network performance. Um, they're, having, they're having some struggles there. Um, Alibaba, X-Dragon uh, is, their, is their smart NIC. Um, and so standardization doesn't exist in that market. The, the cloud's pointed away. And now you have, um, you know, Pensando, Broadcom. Uh, I'm having trouble yeah. saying NVIDIA instead of Mellanox. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I was on the well, phone to Israel the other day and it's like, I know these guys are Melanox. Okay. <laughs> well, let me, who let me is, call it white label, whatever you, whatever you want to call it, white label, whatever it is. Right. Say again. Uh, who is taking up that, um, those offers from, from Microsoft, from Alibaba, who, who's embracing them right now? Those are internal only. You can't get them. I, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. my, I guess my question is, maybe I missed, I missed a turn there. Uh, the question of virtualizing network, I completely agree. You're, you're basically allowing hardware to kind of be, to be virtualized, to be, you know, it's, it's, it's network as code, um, you know, in, in a lot of it. But the question of how does that fit with the conversation about open source hardware. It says if I had if I had the the base technology and access to exactly those those aspects that allowed me to virtualize network adhering to all of the, the network protocols, then we're coming pretty close to open source hardware or a kind of a, a hybrid that says I have met the goal of open source hardware, which is I'm putting it out there as a standard more than anything else to, that others can, can adopt and with the result that the customer base has the possibility of a second or a third source for it. And that was the theory of OCP. And the problem with OCP is that if you take the Facebook Yosemite board, you can't have that processor model number. Yeah. Okay. They made the spec open, uh, but the BIOS is theirs. Yeah. Okay. They replaced the BIOS. Okay. And yeah. so you don't so, have access to that. So, um, and, and, you know, and you want to, you want, I, you know, as I'll say it for the group, but we know very clearly if you don't have, BIOS for, for hardware and that BIOS isn't being maintained, you don't have hardware. Right. 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 Well, I mean, so it's the soft hardware doesn't do anything. 
it's just a it's hardware you need the software to run on it and that's that that's where bios and and firmware kind of come it's into actually, play it, to me it's it's what crushed arm in in marketplace adoption because nobody was cross compiling for arm or cross compiling for arm in a way that everybody could use right this it took is them 10 years actually doing more for arm than than you know anybody else except raspberry pi has done and raspberry yeah. pi did arm in a the, crappy way and it set everybody back the other thing and um, the the details are starting to come out about Nitro um, as part of the infrastructure keynote, it, like live while we're talking about this. I'm seeing some of the the things go live, but I mean, so now I can talk about some of it. But you know, the thing with Nitro that I see is it's not just kind of offloading to the NIC, but it's offloading to a whole different system. And the the integration, the Nitro system integration across systems and across functions is incredible. It's not as simple as, um, you know, it, years ago, you used to be able to, to talk about, let's offload some of the processing off the CPU onto the FPGA or onto, onto the NIC. We're long past that. And now the whole Nitro system is its own entity separate from the core instances for compute and storage and the rest. And so those are, and those aren't monolithic systems. Those are actually well integrated specifically for Amazon. And I think this is part of the problem, right? That works well for Amazon. That works well for those Amazon customers. But what happens if you're in a multi-cloud scenario or hybrid cloud and you're not using outposts or not using something locally? Okay, well, you can only do it for those aspects that are in public cloud. You're not going to be able to into Amazon's public cloud. You're not going to be able to tie that up uh, externally. And so it's that like having it's like having a PBX that only works with one. Uh, that's right. That's right. Your Nortel <laughs> box. That's a great analogy. Your Nortel <laughs> DM100 only works with your DM100, right? It's not going to. It's not going to do I've SS7 been, off to I've something lived else. I've long enough to remember those days. <laughs> when that actually was the case. Yeah. Oh, Rich, that was a PBX? <laughs> yeah, well, no. it was. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I keep getting the X and the J mixed up. <laughs> hey, yeah, real I, quick. I the, remember when we sorry, had Tim. that, uh, when I was at National Semiconductor, we had a switch. It was a telco class switch because in Santa Clara, we actually had a whole exchange for the company. And it was incredibly rare to have the, I forget what it was. It was like 408923 exchange was national semiconductors or maybe it was 423 was national semiconductors exchange. And we had a switch down in the basement of building E that was, you know, it was a telco switch. If you walked into any telco, that's exactly what you would see. And then it was fun when, you know, several years passed and you wanted to IP enable it. And we're like, okay, how do we do this? Uh -huh. Yeah. So, hey, real quick, Paul, but, Paul, before you jump there, I, I just want to, yeah. and you may be going there. I just want to ask. So, so how, where I'm going with this is trying to understand how this ties back to Equinix, right? Because obviously yeah. you've got, you've got data centers, Equinix purchase packet, Equinix metal is spun from packet. Um, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of things that are tying together. There's some things that um, Keith and I have been working on that we're trying to understand kind of the angle. Um, you know, from, from a lot of these conversations, how is this tying into things like with Equinix being able to maybe, maybe even like AWS, the outposts, and there's a lot of functionality that you can bring in. Are you, are, is the angle you're going at here is 
potentially from an Equinex metal perspective, offering this open source hardware to drive innovation, not tied back into any one vendor. So, I'll so I'm going to stop there I'll, and let you take off. I'll tell you a short story. So <laughs> this is part of why I'm here, okay, is that as Equinix started to deploy, um, as Packet started to deploy as part of Equinix, all of a sudden the scale went from kind of small scale, you know, uh, their their differentiation was hosting a bunch of a bunch of images nobody else was hosting and and, and that was it provisioning a bunch of different arm cores mm -hmm. if you knock carefully and have the right password you can even find a huawei uh, arm processor there still in their cloud uh qualcomm who's out of the business they still have a few of those right and so at equinix though we're in the business we, we were in colo and now we kind of call it custom cloud Okay, um, it, it's we're in the business of provisioning for folks who have some workloads in mind, uh, who in past days would have bought and co-located because they want to be at the network, right? They want to be either at the edge of the network or at the core of the network, but they they need low latencies. They've got requirements in certain regions, and and instead of going and getting some AWS instances and, and shared metal. Right, um, it costs a lot more if you're going into AWS and you're getting dedicated infrastructure. Okay, that's what okay. we sell. Right, Paul. Yeah, Paul. Quick, quick question on that: Is it just about? I mean, your point about being close to and having the ability to put your fingerprints on the network in this case, is it just about latency, or is it more about the? Is it as much about? Um, malleability and and kind of configurability of the network that you can think about your application your use of this to actually include the network as a, a first class citizen in the way you design a, an offering as Equinix. opposed to yeah living on top of a nailed down network over which you really have no editorial control oh. Most of the big clouds actually already use our core network. That's our value. Yeah. That's our value. Okay. Your fiber. Yes. We, we see. We see it at. I mean, I'll, I'll reiterate what Paul's saying too. We see it with, at Linode as well. It's absolutely there is absolutely demand um, for better latency than they're getting from any of the hyperscalers. We see it in Mumbai. Um, <laughs> with you know when we go up against uh, AWS sometimes where that all that traffic gets shipped back to Virginia Mike, uh, just it, because it's because the, that's crazy. Mike, yeah. it, well you start is it you, just le is it really is latency I, really the longest quality, quality of service well, yeah, so if, service. so oh, if you want more than four nines I mean s3 buckets may have like 11 nines worth of the, your bits are the bits you put in the bits you pull out but in terms of quality of service of the network to get those bits it's awful but i, I don't look i get it i gotta push back a little bit there i, I don't <laughs> okay. i don't think that's actually right right I, in, in terms of what richard's getting to on the latency side right um and so, so first off, what I'd say is what the reason for bare metal, at least in my experience, was workloads weren't virtualized and the virtualization stacks that were out there didn't provide the throughput they're expecting at the server level, not the network level. 
True. Um, and that was forcing us to go down the bare metal stack, not, not because they were looking for ultra low latency. But then the second piece to that is, you know, the Equinix core backbone grade. It's all about interconnect into the country level. Yes. Right. <clears throat> and, you know, virtually none of the cloud providers and probably the worst of all is AWS um, provides good connectivity into the access networks. And so it's all about building out the peering relationships, dedicated, shared, however you want to do it yep. to drive that latency down. And, and that's a layer that, you know, is still predominantly put on um, the, the content provider or service provider to actually go provide that. And, and right. by the way, that's not easy. You mentioned Dubai, right? You, let's go to the let's go to China where it's all economically um, blocked. Let's go to the Middle East where it is geopolitically blocked. Let's go to South America where I, I have a word for it, but let's just say it's blocked there as well. So some of these things are are tough to solve when you talk about just getting to the access networks, and that's not an issue of having to have ultra low latency. It's just having good connectivity into the access networks. That's what, it's, so, it's one of the reasons why longevity in this in this space is key, right? We all want to talk about cloud, about cloud and sort of the that easy front end to it, and we always forget that all of that networking, all of peering, is based on relationships, mm -hmm. which I know a lot of us old timers all will will remember, uh, and that stuff is really really hard, really hard to talk about, right? The mark I'm the marketing guy, and the marketing guys struggle to talk to talk about this so you don't educate people on how hard this stuff is to actually do um and it's yeah yes. it's, it's key if i if i could let's you know they're back up back I, up half a step okay because we're, we're talking about networks and peering and that's that's all great um but that doesn't go back to open hardware uh right now so I, that's a great discussion and we should continue point. it okay um so where I'm going to go with this is a couple of years ago, um, we started using something called Open 19. Okay, it's been a while since a lot of you have heard that. Um, the LinkedIn got bought by Facebook. Facebook has Olympus. LinkedIn had to pull out, and you kind of haven't Microsoft. heard of LinkedIn Open. got bought by Microsoft. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Uh, you're right, no Microsoft. I had it in my mind. We're, we're hypersensitive about Facebook buying things at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Now, LinkedIn got bought by Microsoft. Yeah, Microsoft has Olympus, right? Um, Microsoft said, LinkedIn, you're going to use our cloud. LinkedIn said, okay, you bought us. Um, they pulled out of Open19, and you haven't heard of it. We've been continuing the path of Open19. Um, it's a little bit different than OCP in that Open19 is intended to it has, there's a chassis form factor um, with a lot of airflow and routing, uh, wiring and cooling considerations. There's a power shelf. And then there's the power and network blind connector interconnectivity. We don't specify in Open19 what actually goes over that network. We're just providing differential pairs. Um, PCI Express, whatever you want to run on it. Okay, um, Ethernet. Um, the power spec is probably the most, uh, the closest to hardware. And what we're trying to do is unblock innovation. Um, we have a we have a spec now that's 12 volt spec. We're going to move to 48 volts, and we're going to try and define a spec that's going to last five to 10 years um, in terms of providing a power supply to a rack that makes sense for hyperscale. There's a brick 
form factor. The brick is what we what you would call a sled. Okay, they wanted to be different. It, it's a sled, right? Um, and so I'm new to it. I don't have any invested intellectual capital in brick, right? But the sled is is a physical form factor for Open 19. It doesn't actually even specify the screw hole positions or mounting. It's it's here's a space to innovate in. And, and we do that because we actually have ARM, AMD, Intel, all in bricks from different vendors. And we, and we want to be able to innovate. Um, in the future, we're going to be designing in an open environment, things like manifolds um, that can handle advanced cooling. Okay, we're not gonna specify whether that's one phase, two phase, you know, redfish, bluefish, whatever. Um, but what we wanna try and do in this is create a level playing field for things that you don't want to worry about, which is, can I put this in a rack, right? I don't need to recreate bent metal every time I create a server, okay? Can I create a standard for housing these bricks over that will last 10 years? That's why telcos are interested. Uh, we, we do have some continued does interest that, from- Does that then speak to the next set of questions like the top of rack switches and thinking about in aggregation in switches networking so that you can actually virtualize do virtualized networking that might if we're lucky by 2030 be able to manage all of the endpoints that every individual smartphone represents you know in the network that you have to have to deal with because right there if it if it actually contributes to it because i'm i'm you know i'm out of my out of my wheelhouse here for, for some of this but it strikes me that if this is really going to impact networking in 2030 beyond just the latency issues that you're talking about it's actually capacity and access that you're you're going to address with something like this is that the is that the objective here? Our goal is to provide a framework for whatever topology you want to envision in that rack. Okay, for the bandwidth, so the connectors are going to have to advance. We're going to have to support 200, 400 gig. Okay, um, that's the next gen that we're planning right now. Obviously, it's not in the first. Over where, 19, but we're already doing 25 gig, right? And where, so, where do you go for net for NSPs and and that next generation that next generation of silicon that kind of plays with this? So that's up to the, and that's why we're that's why Open 19 is kind of pre-competitive because we're talking to a set of folks who are going to build us bricks that meet our business objectives. Somebody else can design completely different bricks that we don't have access to and use the Open 19 physical power and network framework to do something completely different. But yeah. what we're trying not to do is in reinvent the wheel every time. There are efficiencies. Um, I think what Open how would you how would you distinguish that from a proprietary approach that a, a CSP today is is using an Amazon or Oh, they're all dumping those proprietary approaches into OCP. So we have good examples. We know exactly what they're doing. The, the problem is that you can't do all of it. 
we're trying to, as a moderate scale provider. So it's, it, it's kind of an, it, it's, it's an intermediate step or it's a phased approach to getting to Nirvana. Yeah, I mean, in some ways you, you have to figure out what your swim lane is and stay within your swim lane, but figure out how you're going to interface with the next swim lane. The challenge is that, you know, if you go back in history, you know, Equinix, the reason why enterprises went to Equinix was partly because of what they offered in, in terms of the core. Um, it was always known as the Cadillac. I looked at it. Uh, we never selected it because it was so bloody expensive compared to what you could get. And there was a bit of arrogance at the time. But since then, uh, things have kind of normalized a bit. And you started to get these direct connections into these other cloud providers, which is huge because you essentially take out the last mile in the, the mix. Where that plays into what Paul's talking about from my perspective is that I just want Equinix to, to focus on what Equinix does best. And that in its own right is huge. But you've got to figure out how to plug into, like we were talking about Nitro, you've got to figure out how to plug into those cloud providers so you're not just coming in the front door, but you have a means to come in the side door as well. Those are not as clear today. It's, and that's where are, we need to, to those start Those are silos today. The, yeah. And that's not going to change probably for the next 10 years. We'll still be talking about silos in 2030. Um, the, the one thing that we're doing... Um, and I'm going to leave like a, a minute or two to let this settle. We're going to have a press conference, but um, the Open 19 Foundation is going to be adopted by the Linux Foundation as a product, a project. And so this will mesh with LF Edge, with Open BMC, with a bunch of the because it has to be a, to the point. It has to be hardware, software, co-design. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. the reason the reason why LF would adopt a hardware project is that we're sufficiently high level to at one point not constrain innovation, but at, at another point provide some efficiencies of scale. Okay. Yeah. So speaking from an or, from an open 19 organizational, not Equinix, that's the goal. Yeah, go ahead, Lawrence. Uh, were you done? Yeah, I had a <laughs> I totally hey, Lawrence was raising his hand very quietly. Oh, yeah. so. Open 19, what's Equinix's involvement with that? We're deploying it. That's how we're deploying metal. That okay. is that's literally how we're deploying metal. We have so a and, uh, Okay, just uh, and Vapor.io, what's your relationship with them? Say again? Vapor.io. Ah, no, they're, they're a member organization of okay, open 19. Okay. That's our relationship. They're, they're just another just member a, organization. Okay. Yeah. So, so thinking in a relatively small thing is the consumer of this type of stuff, right? What, yeah. what I kind of heard out of all that is we're, we're going to try and standardize the rack first and the power supply. So it rack gives you power future supply, upgradability, yeah. right? It, it simplifies the operational procedures for how you do A, B, C, or D, but we'll start at the lowest level, which is we provide a rack Right now, we're going to provide the sleigh into which you can deploy things. Display. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's like the ATX motherboard design yeah. is the yeah. way I would describe it. But I, yeah, I, I feel like we diverge from, um, and we'll we'll pick it back up. I I actually think that the smart neck conversation was going much more along the lines of what's going to make a difference in twenty thirty. Yeah. 
Paul, I, I mean, yeah, I, I'm glad y'all are doing the open 19 stuff. The lack of, I, I want people to be able to swap vendors in and out more easily. That's, that's good. When, when I hear what everybody was saying about how important the networking, network topology and proximity is, that the thing that will enable us to take heterogeneous infrastructure and create some commonality across it is SmartNICs. That SmartNICs are going to address the abstraction that is keeping interoperability from occurring. And, and I actually think that we, we need to think about the interoperability, like, because that, that's where this, we're going to go from either all these big silos with Amazon and everybody else, which SmartNICs are creating value for them. We want to talk about how we break the, out of those silos and cross connect them. It sounds like the SmartNICs are going to provide the Trend, the translations. So there's and two level. There's two levels to SmartNICs. I'll just say because I'm right in the middle of it right now. Yeah. Okay. There's the there's the SmartNIC and the sidecar offload. Yeah. Okay. At the node, and then there's the problem of how do you how how is your corporate network how is your cloud network um, orchestrating those the health well being status functionality of all those SmartNICs. And today they're proprietary silos. The SmartNIC itself is becoming the new proprietary. Uh, I, don't, mm -hmm. I don't see any open SmartNIC effort right now. Okay, um, it's that because you can talk about all the individual things a SmartNIC does and just getting access to the ARM cores for example, on a SmartNIC um, is an exercise. Then you have to deal with the way that that SmartNIC handles different functionalities. They all have, it's all different hardware, right? And so is it a ConnectX uh, switch fabric that you're connecting to? Is it some other proprietary switch fabric that just popped up? Um, and, and great, to, and I'm saying great discussion, but it's really nuanced. And, and right now, all of the vendors in the space are flocking to this as the place they can be proprietary and differentiated. Mm -hmm. And then, let me add real quick, because I know we're running out of time, because Rob, you went exactly where I was trying to like cut everybody off. <laughs> because the SmartNet conversation, I'm thinking back three, four years ago, when we were building out massive scale IoT within a very large <laughs> company at scale, we did BGP, so we used like Quagga and things like that. We did BGP all the way down to compute and, mm -hmm. you know, multiple racks, being able to do all that from containers and all of the moving parts, being able to do a cloth, cloth fabric and be able to bring that BGP down into the node. You still have a lot of issues. And I see SmartNIC falling into that where you can offload that routing functionality, either using FRR, things like that and bring that functionality into that smart Nick and be able to scale this stuff even further than what we were doing years ago. Right. Yeah. Um, that's the and promise. I think that's where, yeah. Paul, I think that's where Paul was going. So number one, I thought I was onto something that was like not even close. And then Rob went there and then I'm like, I got to say this. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's a great discussion. It's just, it's not open yet. Uh, no. Not, not in any fashion. No. Um, and so yeah. Let's, yeah how could be until it's until we've reached a level of innovation where the the patterns are standardized and yeah. people people have a benefit in collaborative open development 
Actually, it's, there are multiple generations of nitro, multiple generations of, of uh, whatever Microsoft's using, uh, catapults, that was the word. Uh, X-Dragon has gone through four generations at Alibaba. Um, it's, it's really a moving target in terms of the scope of which you can offload uh, and then give the customer full access to a piece of metal. Uh, and But I'll say most of the clouds aren't doing that. So when you look at IaaS and shared instances, uh, they're using the SmartNIC to provide better access to two of those 28 cores for, for, for separate tenants. Yeah. So how do you have two cores over there, four cores over there, eight cores over there? And that's where they're seeing the economies of scale is, is being able to do that multi-tenant environment. Um, we see something different with Spartanix. Uh, yeah. Still a really good deal, but, but it's all going through intensive evolution of what do we need to do? Where do we need to do it? Does the switch own it? Does the Spartanix own it? Um, is the Spartanix the switch? Uh, is a network of those in a mesh the switch? Um, it's just, very moving target, very fluid right now because it is intense innovation. Yep. And this also mm -hmm. gets us closer to multi-cloud, right? In my opinion, because actually multi-cloud, I, and I say that meaning that you control your cloud at that level because you're I, able to distribute that stuff and be have consistency across. No cloud will give you access to their smart day. Exactly, you're not gonna have layer two, you're not gonna have all that functionality that no, you need no. to make a thing portable. And there's so many other things to get the multi-cloud. Yeah. I don't think this is the blocker. Yeah. It's it's a piece, but it's definitely not the blocker. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not, no, I agree with you, but I think if you when I look at the landscape with a 2030 hat on, which is where I'm we're looking for what's going to create an inflection point or what's going to create disruption against status quo. Yep. Um, this this technology has the potential to take existing legacy infrastructure, which is going to be existing in the next 10 years, yep. and put new devices and new communication techniques onto it. Um, and so if, if somebody's going to break the current patterns, it's going to, they're going to do it in a way that works with what's there and brings in something um, oh. as a translation oh. layer. So. Yeah, let me be more cynical. Okay. Okay. Um, Moore's law is dead. Right. And so the compute sled itself and the memory on the compute sled and the, yeah, we're going to virtualize the NVMe and all that kind of stuff, right? But the compute sled itself is going to become a commodity. It's going to be increasingly hard to differentiate when we just don't have a replacement for CMOS in sight. Everybody's going to be using the same, you know, chiplet technologies soon and following AMD down that road. And it's... It, so the, the compute brick itself gets more specialized. Um, and part of that is the personality of the SmartNIC. And so I think it, in, increasingly it moves the innovation target. Um, so Intel and everyone else who's doing this is really trying to find where their next generation of value is going to be. And personally, with RISC-V coming on and ARM, you know, AWS deploying Graviton 2s across the planet, um, I, think, I think that the compute becomes a commodity. Then you're talking about the network having the value and the smart NIC is the demarcation point between the network and the compute and storage. Let me spin it slightly differently. 
Uh, I'm okay. just kind of curious what people's thoughts are, right? So what, what Rob said, I, I think is maybe directionally kind of correct, right? And, and so two years ago, talking to enterprises, they were all talking about trying to adopt cloud and move existing workloads into the cloud, right? Um, the term I hear today is lift and shift, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, we, yeah. We've given up trying to make the migration to it. And so what do I need from my cloud provider to be able to lift and shift? And I think where you're seeing the virtualization of the network stacks is because it's a requirement to enable enterprises to lift and shift existing workloads in, into the cloud side. So I think it's a business driver. I mean, there may be a whole bunch of proprietary stuff down here, maybe five years, we'll get some standardization and, and some openness out of this. But I think there's an underlying business driver and I think it's related to the lift and shift mentality because they haven't been able to figure out how to do it in a, a more principled fashion. I have to agree. Re refactoring applications, hiring, hiring. We, we started out with a discussion on computer science yeah. <laughs> and how hard it is to find app engineers, right? Yes. App developers. And yeah, lift and, lift and shift exists because you can't refactor all of your business apps. There's just no economic incentive to go do that. Uh, you don't have time, you don't have the people power. Uh, the person who wrote it may have died 10 years ago because they wrote it 40 years ago. <laughs> and it's really hard to find those folks. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yes, then that's the, that's the whole problem, right? You can't, you, you're right, Paul. We started off with this conversation just a bit ago was, it is hard as hell to find people that can understand even a little bit across everything that's required to make this work. Yeah. Um, Larry bringing it full circle. <laughs> Everybody says I have ADD, but I have a plan. <laughs> he lulled us all in there, brought us all the way back right. sitting there and waiting for it. All right. <laughs> Everybody. Rob, thanks. Thanks very much. We need to wrap it up. Paul, this was great. Thank you for bringing it. Um, as always, everybody, this has been a really enlightening conversation. So it's fun. Highlight of my week. Appreciate Take it. Take care. Talk to you all soon. Next week, we are talking about inflection points. Um, and I think Sarbeet's trying to put together an invite for a watch party for Werner's AWS reInvent talk. So stay tuned for that, too. I thought you were Next talking Tuesday. ginger ale, man. <laughs> Werner's ginger ale. What? Werner's ginger ale is what I thought you were saying. I'm like, yes. Oh, uh, no, Werner's, uh, did I say? Yeah. I don't know. You know, from more coffee. <laughs> see, you see you guys. <laughs>